Hi everyone, Mike Taylor here. I'm recording a special introduction before we get into the show. Ooh, special introduction. Today we're talking to Sam Adrangi from Carousel Capital Management, as well as Shane Wilson and Mike Ranieri. We had to rip through a few ideas pretty quickly, so I want to give a little bit of background on the stocks that we're going to talk about. Proteostasis Therapeutics, ticker symbol PTI, is a small clinical stage biotech company with a market cap of about $100 million. Carousel had been skeptical about the data for one of its key clinical candidates. Next up, St. Joe, ticker symbol J-O-E, is a real estate developer, and Carousel's bearish on the value of its land holdings. The company is controversial, and there's an added wrinkle to the story involving famous investor Bruce Berkowitz and his Fairholme Fund, ticker symbol F-A-I-R-X. Finally, we talked about Quinn Street, an online advertising company with an interesting operating ecosystem. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed. Carousel is short, proteostasis, St. Joe, and Quinn Street. Hey, this is Daniel. I want to get in on the intro fun. I just wanted to add that PTI sold off pretty heavily Wednesday and Thursday. We recorded this podcast on Tuesday, June 5th, so that was before the sell-off. So when Carousel talks about PTI not changing much, that's because that news hadn't broken yet. Okay, let's hear some hot takes and some loud guitars. No one ever wants to think about the overall pattern. They, all, they just want to talk about the reasons why you know, this phase two, which is ambiguous, will succeed, even though there are so many others where from phase two to phase three, they fall apart. I think as dedicated short activists, you know, who've, who've sort of run a, a large number of campaigns over the years, I think we've gotten a good sense for just if a, just because a short comes out and says that a given stock's a short doesn't necessarily mean that they're always right. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Joining us today is Sam Adrangi from Carousel Capital Management, as well as Shane Wilson and Mike Ranieri. Carousel is known for its activist short strategy and strong social media presence. We'll be talking today about a few of Carousel's recent investment ideas and then dig a little into Carousel's strategy and Sam's investment philosophy. Welcome to the show, Sam, Shane, and Mike. Thanks, it's, uh, it's good to be here. So I wanted to just dive in and get started with Proteostasis, which was a recent short idea about a pharma company with a clinical stage candidate that you had some questions about. And I think Shane took the lead on this. So Shane, can you just give us a very brief recap of the main Proteostasis idea? Sure. So it's a company that's working on a what they say is a unique drug for cystic fibrosis. And our argument is basically that from everything we've seen so far, the drug doesn't work. So we try to go through all the clinical and preclinical data that's out there about the drug, which the company has tried to spin as showing it's you know going to be really great. And we try to argue that, in fact, it all is telling the same thing, which is that the drug isn't doing anything. Awesome. So it looks like the idea is working out so far. And also there was sort of some immediate market reaction when your article published. So what's changed or what's happened since you published the article? Well, in a, in a way, I think the answer is not very much. You know, there was big surge in the price 
you know, right before the time when we put out our piece. Coincidentally, I think the same day we put out the piece, they happened to do a capital raise. Um, so, you know, we kind of referenced that in the beginning of what we say. But, you know, I think uh, you could make arguments both ways. But a lot of times when, when companies are very aggressive about issuing equity into a big run-up in their stock, it's, it's sort of a signal of not having confidence in their own stock. I mean, there may be cases where you could argue, well, that's, you know, good financing they, need, they needed at the time. But I think we saw that as a little bit of a message that, you know, they, they probably are looking at their stock and, and scratching their heads a little bit the same way that, that we were. So, you know, I think that had the you know probably had the effect of of making the market a little more skeptical you know perhaps what we said you know added to that as well there's been nothing really major in terms of you know clinical developments or anything i think the company did you know one of the uh, yeah i think frankly one of the smaller points we made but an interesting point was that they had a clinical trial that was supposed to put out some some data you know any day now or i guess that time has already passed and and they just didn't report it and I believe the company did basically confirm they had, you know, quote unquote, deprioritized that. Of course, I think they were saying, you know, that wasn't, shouldn't be interpreted as a negative necessarily, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think that's what we would expect them to say if it was, it should be interpreted as a negative. Other than that, it, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, this is one of these, these theses, I think, that won't really be confirmed or, or, or disproven for a while. You know, we're going to have to, to to really to really know for everyone to really know and agree that this is right. It's going to it's going to take a phase three trial of, of on a large enough scale, um, and and that hasn't read out certainly. Cool. Uh, to touch on that, you know, the company's perspective versus your perspective. That's something we talked a lot about in our podcast about proteostasis, and that's. My next question is basically, how do you balance the reality of clinical stage companies needing to tell their story to survive or to get move on, move a candidate forward with this potential for misleading or even potentially deceptive information coming from management? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think, look, our expectation is that, you know, companies will be relatively promotional and positive about about their prospects. I mean that's that's only natural. I don't think we really blame them for that. I think there is sort of a spectrum there. You know, we can all debate whether what this company is doing is kind of crossing the line in terms of, you know, being overly promotional or perhaps they're still within the the realm of reasonableness. I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree about where any particular company falls. I mean, most are, are going to be a little bit arguable. Even even big companies, of course, you know, will 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 tend to emphasize the positives. So I think from our perspective, we're not really primarily trying to accuse a company of doing anything or, or doing anything wrong as such, or at least that's not the main thing we're trying to talk about. I think what we're trying to say is, you know, the market should focus on the reality. You know, the company can say what the company wants to say. You know, as long as it's not, you know, truly clearly misleading anybody, they'll they'll probably you know get away with it. But we are more trying to communicate with with other investors and say, you know, here here are these factors that you need to take into consideration when you're figuring out what you think of this company. Uh, you can't just you know, or you shouldn't just look to what the company is saying. I think that's that's true even in a case where the company maybe you know, behaving in a perfectly fair way and not misleading anybody. And, and I'll, jump, I'll jump in on that. 
I'll jump in on that. You know, and that's one of the things that we focus on at Carousel. I think within the realm of short activism, you do have other players that spend a little bit more time on you know, management, motivated motivations, and background. Carousel, we try to focus on the fundamentals of the business. You know, whether a certain drug's going to work or whether a certain technology's going to work and whether the valuation that market's describing it justifies that. You know, you can have great businesses where you have a very promotional management team and they're very excited about their businesses and they promote it, but, um, you know, they're not shorts because fundamentally they're sound. Um, so, you know, we try to focus a little bit less on you know, what the management intent is than sort of the fundamentals of the business. And, you know, I think in the case of biotech, you just get a lot of situations where, you know, internally a an executive team may suspect that a phase three trial is not going to be successful, but, you know, if the market's giving them a high valuation, they'll take that opportunity to raise money and try to sort of build out their development programs or maybe... At some, at some time down the line, they can grow into that valuation. And we certainly don't fault them for that. It's just that if a certain drug is not going not to succeed, but it's being valued in the market at, you know, a billion dollars, two billion dollars, or, or whatever it may be, um, you know, we're going to point out the evidence that we see for why that valuation is not justified. So getting to that, this kind of ambiguity between where, where managements fall, and I'm hearing that that's not necessarily that bad fundamentals or good fundamentals and promotional management or non-promotional management, those, those two axes don't necessarily have to have any kind of correlation. They don't have to go with each other one way or another. But how do you get started looking for a short idea in biotech amid all that kind of confusion about what management's saying versus what the actual prospects are? Yeah, I think, you know, there there is certainly not some magic formula that that we know of. It just tends to be very idiosyncratic. A, a lot of these things are, a lot of things that, that sort of come to interest us are stocks that have, you know, run up a lot on some kind of event. And, you know, we always wonder, you know, is that is that sharp increase actually justified? Are people getting ahead of themselves? But it's not a very strong signal, actually. I mean, if you you know, something we we wrote about in a, in a positive way, Adamus, um, it had this huge run-up when, uh, I believe when it got FDA approval for its drug recovery. And, you know, it, I think I, I took a quick look at it when that happened and thought, oh, actually, you know what, this this might be justified. You know, there, there are plenty of increases like that that are perfectly justified. So I think, you know, as a preliminary matter, we do look at a lot of the you know, probably kind of obvious signs that 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 might signal you know froth or, or excessive enthusiasm, you know whether in biotech or anything else like you know huge one day moves or there's a huge amount of trader activity like a lot of turnover in the shares or just you know a ton of people tweeting about it <laughs> or um, you know just p- people seeming kind of uh, uninformed and 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 talking about how great it's going to be. I mean those sorts of like normal signs that there's some kind of a mania going on. We definitely look at that. I think that's uh, for, for you know, a substantial percentage of, of you know, things we're interested in. It's, it's because of those kinds of signals. But then you'd have to actually figure out what's really going on. Uh, you know, we don't tend to just say, okay, you know, it went up a lot, therefore it's bad. So you really just, there's no real shortcut, I don't think, to it. You just need to go... You know, read all the you know read all the uh, SEC filings. You know, look at all the in the case of biotech, look at all the clinical data that's out there. Try to look at 
you know, unaffiliated clinical literature. I think it's a big part of what we have done in biotech is trying to get away a bit from what the company is saying. It seems like a lot of biotech investors will take their sense of, you know, what is, what is the sort of state of the art in a particular disease or, you know, what, what, are the, what are the relevant treatments or how does this disease work? I mean, they'll take a lot of that basic stuff from the companies. And a lot of the time, the companies are, you know, fairly representing those things, but a lot of the time they're not. And so, you know, we try to get an independent reading of those things and see how it stacks up against the company. But, you know, it's, it's, um, we don't publicly talk about many stocks. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we sort of screen through that and, and research that we would never you know, put out there as something we have a strong opinion about, because it may just end up being in this kind of uh, zone of uncertainty where, you know, oh, maybe it's a little speculative, there's something there, who knows? You know, I think that's generally like what, what we would conclude after looking at even hyped up biotech stocks. There might be something there, or there might not be, it's just sort of too uncertain. We don't want to put ourselves out there for most of these kinds of stocks. It's only a select few where we feel like, you know, we've developed a, 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 a well-founded opinion that is not what the market is saying, and, and that's what we go with. But it just takes a lot of time to get there. Awesome. So to get specifically back into proteostasis, one thing I wanted to talk about was your assessment of the unusual activity in the placebo group. I believe that they were unusually doing unusually poorly. Can you talk about sort of how you went through the process of making that determination? Yeah. Um, so I can't quite remember where, where that the point originally came from, but I mean, basically uh, I think we were looking through the, the slides they put out in, you know, the most recent investor presentation and, you know, I, I think to be fair, like they, they kind of, the company lets you figure this out. <laughs> you know, they don't quite hide it all the way. Um, so so what the way the company has, has written its press release about the results they put out there, they emphasize the difference between the groups, the placebo group and the drug group. They don't they, they, they very much conspicuously do not say the drug group was like this, the placebo group was like this, and the difference is this. They, they omit the, those first two parts. But in their, in their presentation, they have this bar graph, which people often call a waterfall chart, that shows for each individual patient, you know, how much better or worse did they get over the course of this trial. And I think, you know, this is something we've kind of seen in some of these biotech companies where the information is kind of there, but they don't, the company doesn't give it to you in a numerical way. And so the temptation is just to be lazy and to not <laughs> use what's there. But so, I mean, mechanically, like I copied the, <laughs> the image from the slides, like went pixel by pixel to figure out the height of each bar, you know, mapped it to the, the, the percentage point FEV1 improvement, which is like the, the jargony thing that they're, they're measuring, and then actually calculated the average, you know, in Excel just from figuring out, okay, how, how tall are these bars? Because they don't tell you these actual numbers, but you can just sort of calculate it yourself by taking, you know, assuming the graph is to scale, which it is. So it's like a little bit of drudgery to actually extract the underlying numbers, but you can kind of see from the chart, like something fishy is going on here because you've got these two huge negative bars on the placebo group. Um, it just doesn't look right. You know, it, it just looks weird. And I think this is probably a 
you know, a point that we were extra sensitive to because in this other situation where we, you know, wrote up a report, uh, Bavarian Nordic, this uh, Danish biotech company, the main product of which was this um, prostate cancer, you know, vaccine, quote unquote vaccine called Prosvac. And, and they had a similar thing in their, in their phase two where, you know, it wasn't quite as dramatic, I think, as with proteostasis, but they sort of claimed their drug worked very well, but it sort of looked like the placebo group was surprisingly bad and the, the drug group was sort of nothing special. So, so I think, you know, that kind of situation in a phase two is an interesting kind of pattern. You know, I think, I think people in biotech generally kind of, at least in the big picture sense, they get the point that a lot of phase twos just don't pan out. But then for every specific company, you always, people always think of reasons why their phase two is going to work. You know, like no one ever wants to think about the overall pattern. They, all, they just want to talk about the reasons why, you know, this phase two, which is ambiguous, will succeed, even though there's so many others where from phase two to phase three, they fall apart. So I think that is like a little mini theme that, that, that we've pursued. And, you know, I think it doesn't necessarily, sometimes people interpret that as saying, you know, oh, well, they somehow manipulated their trial results to show that. I don't think we really believe that. We certainly don't have any evidence of that. It's just that, you know, the, the, these things happen with small, with small patient populations, with small N, and it may be fine scientifically to go and publish that result. But as a, in terms of, you know, just re, you know, rationality and reasoning and, and trying to figure out what's going to happen, we can't just ignore the fact that the placebo group looks weird, even if, you know, there's nothing wrong scientifically with what they did. Cool. Thanks. I feel like I could talk to you about this idea for a long time, but I want to move forward. So another recent idea had to do with St. Joe, ticker symbol J-O-E. And uh, Daniel, why don't you take up the questioning around that idea? Yeah, so Joe has been sort of a something of a battleground for a long time. David Einhorn shorted it a long time ago. And it's sort of I was just trying to pull up the chart to see, and it did really kind of peak right before the real estate bubble burst and then sold off a lot. And it's kind of been static for a while. And I guess as you approach something like this, where we published a bullish article on it recently on Seeking Alpha, like how do you, how do you sort of stick out a position given that there is, there has been historically attention in the stock and people who have piled on on one side or another over time? Sure. Uh, I'll talk a little bit and then hand it over to Mike. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I think on Joe, uh, it was a bit of a battle, a battle uh, battleground stock back in the day. But at this point, I want to say it was, a, it was, you know, three or four years ago. And, you know, on the short side, there really hasn't been an um, in-depth uh, argument put out on how the land holdings are not worth a billion dollars or uh, and are worth a fraction of that, I think, in a couple of years. And, and, and the story has changed. You know, I think, you know, the Bay Walton plan you know, was uh, was confirmed more so, I think, in 2016. And the green light presentation had been put out a couple of years before that. And so, you know, we felt that there was something new to add here and that the company had changed sufficiently that, you know, while it, it, it has been written on the past, you know, we were able to provide a, a fresh new perspective on it. Maybe getting into that, uh, one of the things about Joe that seems interesting is that it's it's sort of this opaque. There's there's value in this land, and they might sell two percent of the land, and and then somebody would 
like extrapolate to a broader value and that sort of, but on both sides of the story, it seems to me like there's a big question about what the time value of your money is, mm-hmm. both, as a sh- both as a long and a short, because you don't necessarily want to be stuck into this. So I guess it's sort of a two-part question is how does this, how are you viewing that just as far as the thesis itself? And then also as far as positioning and sort of taking the idea that this is a compelling short, like how are you, is right. this, how are you playing that way? Uh, well, I think that what you've raised is an interesting and, and sort of um, an example of how the story uh, regarding Joe has actually shifted. The bullish article, I think, that you referenced before that, that came out a little bit before our report, you know, talked about an enthusiasm regarding their capital budget and how it signaled a uh, sort of an advancement or, or taking more serious, I think, is how the, the title of the report um, described it, uh, this opportunity with regards to commercial development. And mm-hmm. so the piecemeal selling of 2% of the land holdings, which you know, clearly had done nothing for the stock for, for some time, that narrative, at least in the case of that one bull author, is sort of you know, seeing a shift toward actually the commercial development and the hopeful uh, growth of, uh, of a more recurring uh, stream of income. But, you know, to our mind, um, and clearly, if, 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 uh, if you ever speak to a commercial real estate developer, um, that, that reinforces the view that you simply can't take you know, a static comp for one portion of the land and apply it to the entirety of it. You have to take, you know, a DCF. You have to, you have to incorporate the costs to actually develop the land and make a realistic mm-hmm. assumption as to what those returns will be over quite a long period of time. And so, you know, when, you know, when we spoke to people who followed the, the, the situation for some time, you know, you know, that was sort of confirmed that, that, yeah, you know, you can't really have your cake and eat it, too. You can't simply say that, you know, the land is, is worth what you, what, you, what you think it's worth based off of a cherry picking of comps, while at the same time saying that um, they're not going to sell off the land, they are going to actually develop it, and, and without having a concrete set of assumptions for financing costs. Uh, who that JV partner will be, over how long that will be, what the rates of absorption will be, and so to to our mind, that actually strengthens the view that you can't simply you can't simply sit back and 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 treat this as the you know one off land sales. Um, you do need to look at this uh, on a discounted basis, on an NAV basis, and it's sort of interesting that uh, you know whether you take our assumptions or you take you know a neutral rated assumption from a longtime analyst, a sell side analyst. Um, you know, any sort of realistic set of assumptions will not get you to the current stock price. Yeah, I mean, the argument really rests around just, you know, how large the land holding is relative to any reasonableness in terms of the time frame that it gets developed to justify a billion dollars. You know, I think what we pointed out is there's a reason, you know, development hasn't occurred, you know, in that Bay Walton area in a significant amount over the past 10 or 15 years. I mean, um, it hasn't been economical enough for, for folks to start over the past 10 or 15 years. So, you know, who knows when development begins. One, of, one but, of the common things that we've, you know, we hear, or, you know, I certainly encountered during the, uh, the researching of the name and, and after the publication of the report was sort of how, well, did you think about um, you know, a particular expansion of a road that will go through the territory or, you know, what about 
the sports complex or what about the fact that population growth is you know taking place and the way I would answer that is that all of those things, none of our, our thesis doesn't rest on the idea that development has not occurred or will not continue to occur in this area. Clearly, you know, there has been population growth in this part of Florida and the rest of Florida. But the point is that has done nothing for the stock at any point in the past, you know, 10 years. And it, it simply reinforces that you must take a view of uh, just how and when true revenue moving events uh, for a stock that's trading at, you know, 90 times EBITDA, what have you, you know, will actually move the needle. And I think it's very difficult for, for perhaps for certain bulls to, to sort of see what they think are, uh, you know, positive uh, developments within uh, that community and yet a stock price stuck in neutral because they just don't understand that the time value of money basically dissipates those things to, to, to sort of levels of immateriality and that taking a true disciplined view of what the assumptions necessary uh, of the correct assumptions that you must make to have to, to generate a return uh, in excess of the, you know, the cost of capital, you, 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 one will sort of conclude as we have that actually the stock is overvalued and that, you know, it's just not an attractive investment. Okay, that's interesting. It, one of the maybe the last thing on this one is one of the aspects you highlighted that was one of the more near term things was the fair home fund and their requirement to potentially reduce the stake. And so, what do you think of fair home generally? And then, what are you in terms of what is the how do you watch for this catalyst to play out over coming months, or what's the sort of how do you assess that as you're going forward? Sure. So it's a tough one to assess going forward outside of, um, you know, just checking on Fair Homes 13Fs as they come out. And, you know, uh, until sort of a 8K is filed by the company, you know, if something, if a material event occurs with respect to Fair, fair Home needing to reduce its stakes, you know, probably as a shareholder, you're not uh, finding in uh, sort of a, an adverse impact off of fair home liquidating part of its position until after the fact. But, you know, it's a, in our mind, based on sort of our examination of the securities law um, around this new liquidity rule, um, it does seem like a big risk. And, you know, the fact that you have a large shareholder um, whose assets are declining, you know, the pressures, the sort of the technical pressures on the stock, um, you know, in our mind was significant here. Yeah, I mean, uh, they have, you know, I think what we identified in the report was the equivalent of uh, four or five months of, of kind of cash on hand to meet uh, redemptions, um, at least at the pace of redemptions that the, that Fairhome has been seeing over the past year and a half or so. And so, you know, the, it would seem that they are arriving at some kind of decision point um, towards the back half of these, this year. Uh, that also coincides with when the SEC liquidity rules uh, go into formal uh, effect. We would assume that they are currently having conversations with the SEC, um, or, or hopefully the, the Fairhome has had conversations with the SEC going back you know, several months at this point. We know that uh, they did issue a very terse response uh, following a report saying that they disagreed with what we thought was their um, requirement to be in compliance with this. I guess my my understanding is that they don't think that they are subject to the rule, 
which is a very interesting interpretation that certainly the uh, multiple securities lawyers that we spoke with would disagree with. And so we'll see how this plays out. I think that the report very, you know, very carefully did not spell out exactly how Fairhome will be brought into compliance, but um, we certainly have conviction that they will need to be in compliance with this rule, that it certainly applies to them, and that there are certain paths forward that they should be thinking about in order to make whatever disposition more easy, such as potentially sort of separating themselves from involvement with Joe, recusing themselves from the board, for example. Uh, these, this would be a step, uh, as we were advised by um, securities lawyers, that would alleviate some of the insider trading restriction, which would, you know, in turn help them perhaps uh, more expediently get into compliance. But one way or the other, um, we don't think that Fairhome will be able to maintain its current holdings of the company. Okay, that's really, yeah, that's an interesting situation there. Mike, do you want to jump in now on, on Quinn Street, on the, the ad, ad tech thesis there with some questions? Sure. Yeah. So my understanding of the Quinn Street thesis is basically that this is a legacy internet media sales middleman, effectively, and that the economics and the entire incentive environment around this business model are just broadly deteriorating. And you have this kind of Alice in Wonderland environment where there seems to be lots of web traffic that drives the company's revenue that has sort of potentially suspect origins. So I, I thought it was just a very rich and interesting and almost funny thesis. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to ask about was, I think, Sam, you said at the, at the Tilson conference that, that you considered this sort of short idea as, an, as a kind of ethical short. So I wanted to right. push on that concept a little bit. What is an ethical short? Sure. You know, most articles that are written on Seeking Alpha and most of the campaigns that we do, you know, are really about, you know, how a stock price should be, you know, a different number, right? So uh, that, you know, a given stock is overvalued and or undervalued and the market's sort of misunderstanding, you know, what the appropriate valuation is. But sometimes, you know, within short activism uh, and, you know, within long activism as well, you know, funds find an opportunity to bring about some form of social good beyond just simply the valuation of a given stock being higher or lower. And for us, you know, that's an added benefit for a variety of reasons. I think, you know, uh, we just got a fair amount of satisfaction at the firm, um, you know, being a player and sort of helping to rid uh, fraud, you know, fraudulent Chinese companies from uh, from the U.S. capital markets and, and sort of reduce the level of fraud, you know, that was, that was sort of trading on U.S. exchanges. How does that apply here? How does that apply to Quinn Street in particular? Sure. So in the case of ad fraud, you know, you have a situation where... Um, a variety of bad actors are taking advantage of buyers of advertising. So if you're, uh, you know, an example I used at, at the conference, if you're Kellogg's and you want to spend $25,000 on online ads for Kellogg's cornflakes, to the extent that you go on an exchange and purchase $25,000 of, of advertising, but you know, your online ads get put on fake websites that are not seen by actual humans, but are seen by only computers. And the clicks on those online ads are by bots as opposed to 
actual, you know, resident, you know, U.S. residents that, you know, may go to the supermarket and buy Kellogg's cornflakes, you're a victim of ad fraud. And, you know, since the online advertising landscape is evolving pretty rapidly, you know, no one's been able to pin down exactly uh, how much ad fraud there is occurring, how much of, you know, online advertising, advertisers' budgets are being spent on bots and, and computers um, and, you know, programs designed by bad actors and how much of the online ad revenue is being spent on um, actual folks who may go out there and, 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 and buy their products. But, you know, it's a, it's a big problem. And because the intermediaries uh, that connect online uh, advertising buyers and online advertising sellers benefit from increased volume, increased clicks, in, in, increased impressions, their willingness to curtail ad fraud you know, to, to some extent is limited. And there was, an art, there was a report put out last year on Criteo that did a good job of pointing out um, ways in which Criteo may be turning a blind eye to ad fraud that's occurring uh, on its exchanges and, and, you know, via its services. And in the case of Quinn Street, you know, when we found out that the number one source of traffic to one of their main exchanges was coming from a website that doesn't show up in Google Hits when you search for auto insurance. And in fact, you know, is a site really that people go to to earn swag bucks or that they can monetize you know, on the Swagbucks website, um, you know, that traffic, those clicks, those impressions, we're pretty confident are not useful to the insurance companies that are the buyers on Quinn Street's exchange. And so, you know, it looks like Quinn Street has got to be benefiting in some way, shape, or form um, from some of this ad fraud. And if that's generating revenue for Quinn Street, we can certainly see a scenario, and, and, and we do think there's, you know, ample situations where the intermediaries are not cutting down on the ad fraud and are benefiting from them. And so, you know, our job, if we can sort of point this out um, and the stock corrects due to some of the suspicious traffic that we're pointing out and triggers reforms within the these intermediaries and these ad exchanges, you know, that's sort of a, that's certainly a benefit to the world. And it can make our reports a bit more broadly appealing outside of just sort of traders of this given of a given stock, which is also beneficial for our brand. Great. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of brand and all that stuff, I want to zoom out a little bit if we can talk about strategy. First of all, I, I was asking uh, Shane and Mike at the beginning uh, before we started recording how the how the investment business is, and we got kind of a funny answer. And we're seeing, you know. Some, some level of exhaustion or capitulation at the Tilson case learning conference, there was a bit of a vibe of like, this is really hard right now. And so I wanted to get your general sense of the lay of the land for a fundamentals driven strategy. I don't think we found that to be the case. It's not hard. It's not hard for you guys. <laughs> well, you know, to do fundamental investing, to pick good stocks on the long side and, and short you know, attractive shorts on that. No, I mean, I think, I think we found opportunities even, you know, in the sort of more normalized market, certainly a year like this year versus a year like 2011, you know, there's just a lot less dislocations and it's harder to find stocks. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think we've had a ton of difficulty. All right. Well, then maybe that's not a very interesting question. Uh, right. Congratulations <laughs> on your success. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> 
One thing, I, what's your relationship with company management like? Do you get them on the phone or do you talk to them? Uh, and how does that how does that work? And what's their response to you? Sure, um, you know. I, I, Post publication, certainly the, the interactions can get a bit more interesting. But prior to publication, typically in our experience, you know, when we call it management and ask ask questions, you know, we're viewed as you know another investor in the marketplace. You know, you don't find too. You know, we, we sort of ask our questions about the uh, about the company's business and management. I think gives us the similar answers that they give to other investors. We don't have too many instances where management doesn't want to talk to us to the extent that, you know, they may suspect that we may be short their stock and and may uh, point out some of our concerns more publicly. Uh, We've certainly seen instances where management you know, puts uh, gives uh, gives us more attention than they give to the to the typical investor uh, calling them because they want to convince us, you know, of their side of the story and and you know correct anything that they think, you know, we're wrong about. So. One thing that came up at the Tilson Case Learning Conference that you were at, and you know, David Einhorn was there, is uh, you're not bashful. We talked about that briefly, Sam, and mm-hmm. and among hedge fund managers in particular. And I want to know how that, like, why you're able to be less cautious. And, you know, you have lawyers who are trying to protect you as well. So how does that relationship with your lawyers go if you're being more sort of aggressive and out there than a typical hedge fund? How does that dynamic work? Do you have to convince them? And just in general, sort of how do you view your, your public image as part of your strategy? Sure. I mean, the main reasons are investors. So, um, because, you know, we start, I started the fund, um, you know, sort of a one-man shop with less than a million dollars and, and grew it organically over time, as opposed to um, starting out with, you know, certain institutional seed investors. Um, as we got going, and, and really our sort of like first big trades were really exposing these fraudulent Chinese companies, we attracted investors that wanted us to be outspoken as opposed to the other way around, right? So, um, you know, a lot of the institutional investors that invest in in hedge funds uh, don't necessarily like noisy activists. You know, that's sort of a sort of a, a negative term we've heard thrown about. But you do get uh, some investors that do, uh, that appreciate the fact that, you know, we'll speak our mind. And we've just sort of evolved to the point where if we're not out there challenging management teams and sharing our research, we get inbounds from investors saying, you know, why have you guys been so quiet? Um, whereas other funds, typically it's the reverse, right? If they go out there and, and they say something and an investor turns out to be wrong, I think they get a lot of questions from their, from their investors um, who just didn't necessarily sign up for, you know, uh, uh, investing in a vocal hedge fund. And then just in terms of lawyers, you know, certainly we try to be very knowledgeable about the compliance around registered investment advisors, uh, sharing their research to the public. We, we work hard to make sure the relevant disclosures are out, there, are, are out there that we're short or long a given stock and, you know, that we're biased market participants. And, you know, our read of the regulatory landscape is that that's what the SEC wants, you know, wants to see, that they don't necessarily want to curtail, you know, the very productive discussions that go on on the Internet about, you know, why a certain why stocks are overvalued or undervalued. You know, they just want to make sure that false and misleading information isn't put out there and that, you know, investors sort of disclose that they're long or short a given stock and that they 
or biased uh, one way or the other. Yeah. On to sort of media stuff, what do you think of FinTwit, financial Twitter, and the, the sort of community that's developed there? Yeah, I mean, we're we're big fans of it. There's been plenty of instances where, um, you know, we've gotten ideas on Fintwit. We've sort of monitored what others are, are, are saying uh, about some of the stocks that we're researching or that we're holding. And, uh, you know, that helps sort of our research process. Certainly for us, you know, one of the things we've just tried to do over the years is continue to build credibility in the marketplace um, by doing high-quality research, by turning out to be right, you know, over the long term, uh, you know, on our names and leverage that credibility on new ideas that we have to be able to go out to the market and say, hey, you know, this stock is really overvalued, this stock is really undervalued, and get people to start integrating our perspective on the fundamentals and the valuation into sort of the, the, the broader market view of, you know, what the, what the stock is worth. And so it, it's been pretty been an advantage for us to have forums like Twitter um, and seeking alpha out there um, that we can use to build that credibility. Awesome. Hey, thank you. Uh, Daniel, you got any additional questions, sort of broadly speaking? Well, let me, I'll, I'll ask one last question since we sort of themed it on a short approach. And then I, I've noticed that over time, Carisdale or Sam, you specifically have taken long positions in stocks like Locke, mm-hmm. uh, stocks like Herbalife, and Etsy, I believe, which are all have kind of been maybe less so in the last case, but popular shorts. And I just wonder how how that experience on the short side then influences how you take your long book and if there's any sort of specific thing you look for when you when you go through a position like that where you know that there's a lot of people on the other side. And, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the work that short-focused authors do. And so I'm curious how you think through it when you take a position like that. Sure. Um, you know, I think as, as dedicated short activists, you know, who've, who've sort of run a, a large number of campaigns over the years, I think we've gotten a good sense for just if a, just because a short comes out and says that a given stock's a short doesn't necessarily mean that they're always right. Um, and so when you see instances, you know, like Herbalife where, um, you know, the stock was down, but, you know, if you disagree with the, with the thesis, you know, we haven't been afraid to, to go along with stocks. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're always just looking for good investments on the long side and the short side. You know, we like situations on the long side where, where stocks are beaten down, you know, for whatever reason. And if the fundamentals, especially in this market, you know, in this sort of hot market, you know, you typically won't see a company miss earnings and be down 25%. Um, stay down 25% of the fundamentals are sound. Right. That's what happened with Etsy. You know, Etsy sort of um, had a couple of adverse events, I think, over the course of a couple of months and reached a pretty low valuation for sort of its growth rate and, and just overall, you know, internet space. And, you know, it was a good opportunity there. I would say one, one thing that's convenient about uh, a stock that's, you know, heavily shorted or I guess more importantly where the short thesis has been made public is it's kind of a shortcut in terms of doing research. Mm-hmm. You know, you can decide whether you whether or not you agree with the thesis, but at least you have the thesis right there in front of you. In a lot of cases, you know, where uh, you may look at a stock and say, you know, something, you know, something isn't right with this valuation. It can be hard to discern what exactly is the market saying. Like, what what is the the reason investors haven't decided this is a great investment? 
in a case of a heavily shorted stock, you know, when when someone actually goes out there and explains exactly why, you know, it's it is uh, it's kind of convenient, you know, and, and and you know, if if those reasons are all wrong, or if you have a good reason to to believe that that whatever they're saying, you know, is is missing the point or whatever, um, I think you can feel a, a bit more confident you're not missing something because whoever was publicly shorting it probably, you know, pulled out all the stops to figure out, you know, all the sort of bad aspects of the company. And with all those things laid out on the table, it's, if you can overcome those hurdles, then you can feel more confident that, uh, that you're not going to be blindsided by something else. Awesome. I have one last question before I let you guys go. And that's how's culture changed at Carisdale over the years? Are you guys still doing the Thursday night parties or what's going on? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's a young team. You know, Carisdale is a pretty young firm, but, you know, the fund has existed for, the, sorry, the, the investment advisor has existed for nine years. So I think that, you know, we function pretty well together. And, you know, understand the strengths and weaknesses of sort of, uh, you know, the strengths of, of, of different folks of the firm and have learned a lot over the years from, you know, our campaigns and the research we've done and how investments have turned out. And I think the way a lot of these funds work is, you know, if you've got talented people, that familiarity, familiarity that you develop over time with one another, you know, really helps down the line. And so, you know, one of the things that cares though is we get bigger in positions than we used to back in the day. You know, uh, when we find stocks that, you know, we really like as, as shorts or longs, you know, typically we're able to, able to build conviction faster, um, have a lot more confidence in our diligence process, just because I think with each passing year, our own abilities to sort of spot dislocations have sort of increased and, you know, I think the work we do today is, is is a lot better than the work we did, you know, four years ago, and and um, it's probably, you know, it's exciting. It's sort of a fun to, you know, become better over time, in, at least sort of in your own opinion. You know, sometimes the returns don't necessarily follow just because, right. you know, weird things happen in the market all the time, and, and often they're sort of just tailwinds or headwinds that are out of your control, but... Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of money to be made in the market from good security selection, regardless of how the overall market does. And I think the better you become at diligencing investments, particularly complicated investments, you know, the, sort of the better a job you're able to do for your investors. Okay. I don't know if that was an answer to my question, but I got to <laughs> chuckle at you. So I, I guess I'll just let you skate. Uh, but I can confirm that I haven't partied on a Thursday night in a decade. It feels like. Yeah, I don't think I've partied on a Thursday in a long time. Yeah, have you actually? Have you ever stepped foot in our office? It's, you'll you'll be shocked by just how quiet it is. One of those offices where people are far likelier to uh, talk to one another on uh, on Messenger than sort of in person. <laughs> Cool. Okay. Well, we got at least something out of you. All right. Well, I think we're good. Thank you all for a great conversation. And yeah, uh, thanks so much, everybody. Hopefully we right. can do this again when you get another slew of ideas out. But in any case, we really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Um, thanks a lot for hosting this. Thank you. Thanks. Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro. 
Seeking Alpha Pro has a research library covering more than 10,000 stocks and funds, including tickers with no coverage anywhere else. Sign up for a free two-week trial today and get access to Seeking Alpha's full archive of high-quality investment research. Daniel and I use Seeking Alpha Pro to find ideas for this podcast, and there's a lot more out there that we never get to cover here. So check it out and start exploring. Seeking Alpha Pro. It's where behind the idea goes for research.